0: Welcome to Tech Stuff, a production from iHeartRadio. Hey there, and welcome to Tech Stuff. I'm your host, Jonathan Strickland. I'm an executive producer with iHeartRadio, and I love all things tech. And we are continuing our series about spacesuits and their evolution. So the last episode, we really focused on the suits used in the Apollo missions. We also talked a lot about pooping in space which I felt was necessary to talk about. It's also necessary to do sometimes. And uh, those Apollo spacesuits actually did change a bit over time. I'll talk a little bit about that in this episode because the suits that were used in the final missions were a little different from the earlier ones, but overall they were mostly kept to the same design once you got to uh, the the Block 2 Apollo missions after the canceled Block 1 design. And now we're going to talk a bit about... The PLSS, which, depending upon what source you're reading, either stands for Portable Life Support System or Primary Life Support System. Uh, But in the case of Apollo, it really means the backpack. This is the life support system that attached to the suit and allowed astronauts like Neil Armstrong to, you know, galvan around on the moon without being connected by a life support umbilical tether to, you know, like the lunar module. The PLSS would provide the pressurization needed inside the suit, as well as the oxygen that the astronauts would breathe, uh, the ability to scrub CO2 from the suit, also very important, and it also acted as a cooling system to help with temperature control with the uh, water cooling. So in addition, astronauts on the moon also had an oxygen purge system, or OPS, which stood in as an emergency backup should the PLSS fail. So while it says oxygen purge system and it makes it sound like you're getting rid of all your oxygen, it was a secondary oxygen source, but it only gave the astronauts really enough time to be able to return to the lunar module and then connect their suits back to the module's life support system if things really went, you know, pear shaped. The PLSS started off in development in 1961, nearly a decade before one would be used on the moon. And that was necessary because we were learning so much about what would be needed in order to make a moon mission successful. So while development was begun back then, a lot of the stuff we learned would mean we'd have to change designs. For one thing, engineers learned that the metabolic requirements to get stuff done in space were really way higher than what was initially estimated, which meant astronauts were having to put forth a lot more effort than was originally guessed. And that meant that the life support systems would need to keep up with that in order to supply the necessary oxygen and keep the astronauts' body temperature at an acceptable level. But how do you cool off the water circulating through the suit? If you remember, a an inner layer of the suit had plastic tubes essentially, through which water would run and carry body heat away. Well, you got to get rid of that heat, right? You have to have some sort of heat exchange in order for the water to cool down again. Otherwise, eventually you're just going to be running body temperature level water or hotter through the suit, and that doesn't help you with uh, maintaining the right temperature. Well, in this case, The answer ended up being a plate that, to the naked eye, seemed like it was a solid plate. But in fact, it had microscopic pores in that plate. So warm water from the cooling system would fill up those pores, just a little bit, not a whole lot of water. And then it would just boil off into space. And because boiling is an endothermic reaction, it actually carried heat away from the system. And that would cool the water that remained. Uh, And some of that water would just freeze in those pores, effectively sealing the pores. But then this water would get warmed by the cooling system uh, or the gas circulating system, and the process would repeat itself. And it would continuously cool as long as you had enough water running in the system. And you weren't losing a ton of it, you know, all at once or anything. It was little bits. So it could run for a while before being depleted. The invention would end up being used in many future space technologies, including the International Space Station. So not just for spacesuits. Now, I mentioned that the PLSS had an oxygen supply, which is obviously a necessary component for a life support system for a human being. And this was pure oxygen, as opposed to the mix of gases that we breathe here on Earth. A typical lungful down here on the planet is 78% nitrogen, 21% oxygen, and then everything else like argon, carbon dioxide, and some trace elements, all of that is less than a percentage point each. However, in a low-pressure environment, going with this kind of mixture could lead to a dangerous situation in which you don't have enough of a, a concentration of O2 in the astronaut's lungs and their blood so most spacesuit life support systems actually rely on a supply of pure oxygen instead. Oh, an interesting fact. The Space Shuttle and the International Space Station have, or you know, in the case of the Space Shuttle, had internal atmospheres that mirrored Earth's atmosphere. And for that reason, astronauts donning spacesuits for an EVA first had to engage in a bit of pre-breathe activity. Which is somewhat confusing, right? I mean, it's a weird thing to say, but what it means is that they had to strap on a mask and breathe pure oxygen for like a period of like four hours in some cases before getting into the spacesuit and relying on the spacesuit's life support system. And the whole reason for doing that was to have a gradual process to remove nitrogen from the astronaut's blood which in turn would reduce the chance that the astronaut would get the bends once heading into the low-pressure environment of outer space, just like you would see with someone who is, you know, deep-sea diving. All right, tangent over, let's get back to the PLSS. Well, it turns out that we humans, you know, we breathe in oxygen and we breathe out carbon dioxide, among some other stuff. It's not just pure CO2. And if we have a significant buildup of CO2 in our environment, and by significant, I mean... If CO2 levels rise up to be about 8% of what we're breathing, well, we can't breathe properly. It actually, it becomes toxic. And obviously that's a problem, potentially a deadly one. So there had to be a way to remove CO2 from the suit. So you can think of it as there being one port into which pure oxygen flows in. And there's another port where CO2, a mix of CO2 and other stuff could exit the suit. And then you would have a scrubbing system consisting of tanks holding a substance called lithium hydroxide, and that would do the job of scrubbing CO2. You see, CO2 and lithium hydroxide have a chemical reaction together that produces water and lithium carbonate, and it's pretty darn good at it. You don't need a whole lot of uh, this, you know, lithium hydroxide to do the job to remove a good amount of CO2 from space. So it, that's good from a space-saving and a weight-saving standpoint. So a lot of spacesuits and spacecraft use canisters of lithium hydroxide in order to remove CO2 from the environment. And then the water from that process can be used in other functions, either like drinking water or an oxygen generator or even you know the water cooling system. Oh, and the PLSS would also connect through the suit using multiple connectors so that everything could work in harmony with each other. So obviously, like, the suit had connectors that docked with the PLSS to allow the functions to go through. For example, in order to have an effective cooling system, you had to connect the water lines in the LCG suit, which, remember, is underneath all these other layers with the PLSS. And that meant that you had to have these these special things built in so that you had these connections without obviously making any weakness points in the suit. So NASA developed special connectors that would allow this to happen without causing a breach in the system. Pretty ingenious, really, to have everything hook up like this. The suit and PLSS continued to evolve over the course of the Apollo missions, uh, with later missions taking advantage of lessons learned from the earlier ones. And sometimes those plans had to change in the process. So for example... While the world marveled at the successful moon landing of Apollo 11, NASA was already planning ahead to create systems that would allow for longer operation on the moon, which obviously necessitated more consideration for life support. And to that end, they planned to make PLSS units that could provide life support functions for longer durations. However, budget constraints meant that some of those plans got cut. They couldn't afford to do all of them. What was to be a larger secondary life support system got scrapped because there just wasn't money in the budget to have that. So what takes its place? Well, it was what was called a Buddy Life Support System, or BLSS. And I bet you can figure out immediately what that means. It would allow for someone who had a working life support system to connect their suit directly to a second astronaut who perhaps had a depleted or malfunctioning PLSS. And then the two astronauts could then make their way back to the spacecraft where they would hook into the spacecraft's life support system. Uh, It kind of makes me think of drills in which two scuba divers would share the same scuba tank between them in the event of one scuba diver's tank running out of oxygen or otherwise malfunctioning. While astronauts on Apollo missions 14 through 17 had the system available, Fortunately, there was never a need to actually use it. So the buddy system existed, but no one ever had to take advantage of it. It was kind of there just in case. Now, the last Apollo mission of the actual Apollo program had the designation Apollo 17 and was in December of 1972. Following that, NASA focused on the first American laboratory in orbit around Earth, which had the name Skylab. And in order to get stuff you know, to and from Skylab, they relied upon uh, unused Apollo capsules. And I'll have to do a full episode about Skylab in the future, but the suits that astronauts wore while aboard Skylab were very similar to the ones that were used in the final three Apollo missions called the A7LB pressure suit. Uh, The one that Neil Armstrong wore back in Apollo 11 was the A7L, so that one did not have the B attached to it. And the Skylab version had an extra thermal garment as part of the suit. The lunar landing versions of the A-7LB allowed for greater mobility and were designed so that astronauts could conduct more extensive missions on the moon's surface, including using the lunar rover vehicle. So the suit had to have greater flexibility than the older A-7L suits, uh, including additional joints built into the suits to allow astronauts to actually, you know, sit on a rover and putter around on the moon's surface. It actually kind of makes me think of action figures. Like there were different types, like G.I. Joe action figures had joints at the elbow and knee. So you could bend the arms and bend the legs as opposed to action figures from like the original Star Wars action figures. They had no joints at the elbows or knees. So they had very stiff armed and stiff legged movements. Kind of similar to that. These joints were made out of molded rubber, kind of like a uh, like a bellows, almost. And you could find them at the shoulders, the elbows, the hips, and the knees. The PLSS could supply up to seven hours of life support toward the end of the Apollo program, allowing for pretty extensive EVAs. The versions worn inside the spacecraft and the type worn in Skylab were not quite as fancy as the lunar versions. NASA chose to go with a design for Skylab that would require astronauts to actually be tethered to the Skylab facility for life support functions during any sort of EVA. So you had that umbilical back to the spacecraft if you were doing an EVA at Skylab instead of carrying, you know, your own portable life support unit. This necessitated a redesign of the front of the suit in order to accommodate the umbilical tether in a way that wouldn't get in the in the way of the astronaut, right? So you think about it, if you have a hose connected to your chest, You want it to be in a spot where it's not going to get in the way of your arms if you have to do intricate work on, say, a spacecraft. Um, So yeah, this was a bit of a redesign. And the astronauts would connect the other end of the tether to a life support panel inside the airlock of Skylab before depressurization. And while you could have more than one astronaut go on an EVA at once at Skylab, typically they would each connect to their own panel as opposed to sharing a panel. The panel had multiple outputs, so you could connect more than one tether to a panel. But generally speaking, that's not how the astronauts operated. The astronauts did have a half-hour supply of pure oxygen on their suit, just as an emergency backup, if for some reason the life support connection to the spacecraft had failed. The suits had a few other differences from the Apollo versions. For one, they had more zippers to allow for easier donning and doffing of the suits in zero-g, Uh, That did come at the cost of some mobility, but since the Skylab astronauts wouldn't be going on joyrides on the lunar rover, it didn't matter as much to NASA that they wouldn't be able to, you know, like bend at the waist. They also had fewer layers of thermal protection than the Apollo suits. They were using slightly different materials in a new arrangement. This still provided thermal protection, so it's not like they got rid of it. They just found a more efficient way of doing it without needing as many layers of material. There were only three crewed, as in uh, a cruise, people going on them, uh, Skylab missions. There were only three that had astronauts actually go to Skylab. With the first one in May 1973, the last one happened in November 1973 to February 1974. Nine astronauts would visit the Skylab uh, across all three of these missions, divided up between the three, that is. So three astronauts per mission. Across these three missions, astronauts spent a total of 171 days aboard Skylab. Uh, The longest of the three missions was for 84 days. The crews traveled to and from Skylab, as I said, with repurposed Apollo command modules on repurposed launch vehicles that, uh, you know, were meant for the Apollo program, but the Apollo program ended and they still had these. So they were like, well, let's use them. Um, And so the Apollo capsule, the command capsule, would dock at one end of the Skylab. Clearly, they didn't have the lunar module. There was no need for that. So that part was not attached to the spacecraft. Interestingly, the living quarters of Skylab were palatial compared to the Apollo capsule. Astronauts actually were using a converted fuel tank of a Saturn S-4B rocket stage to act as their living quarters, which meant that they had an internal space of 12,750 cubic feet, or 361 cubic meters of space. The Apollo capsule was just 218 cubic feet, or 6.17 cubic meters, so an enormous difference. I imagine that when it came time to, you know, use the bathroom, it was a lot easier to get some space between you and the other astronauts. After that, uh, the Soviets were the only people sending crews up into space using the Soyuz capsule. In 1975, the Soviet Union and America conducted some joint missions uh, with the Soviets in a Soyuz capsule, and the Americans were in the final Apollo capsule, and the two spacecraft docked with each other in orbit. The two crews worked together on several experiments before the spacecraft separated and they both returned to Earth safely. So this was the Apollo-Soyuz mission mission. Uh, Not officially part of the Apollo program, but using the final Apollo capsule. And then the United States kind of hit a dry spell. The Soviets continued to launch Soyuz capsules into space, working on small Soviet space stations under the name Salyut. But for the USA, the crewed missions would be on hold until the space shuttle was ready to launch which had a few delays. It was finally ready in 1981. NASA had hoped to use the shuttle to help boost Skylab into a higher orbit and keep Skylab going. But because of the delays in the space shuttle program, that opportunity went away. Uh, Skylab's orbit deteriorated and then it broke apart upon reentering the Earth's atmosphere in 1979. So there was no way of prolonging that mission. But now we're getting into the next era of spacesuits, the Space Shuttle era. When we come back, we'll talk about how those suits worked and what was different from the Apollo era suits. But first, let's take this quick break. The Space Shuttle era does not have a single suit that we can point to and say, this is what Space Shuttle suits were like. There were actually a few different ones, and of course, there's a difference between the suits that were worn inside the space shuttle for normal operations, uh, as opposed for the stuff like takeoff and landing, and then the stuff worn for EVAs or extravehicular activities—you know, going out into space. But let's start at the beginning. The first mission. STS-1, which launched on April 12, 1981, had two astronauts wearing suits that were based largely on an Air Force flight suit designated S-1030. These were worn by uh, pilots aboard the SR-71 Blackbird aircraft. That's a long-range, high-speed, and high-altitude reconnaissance vehicle. I've actually talked about the Blackbird in other episodes of Tech Stuff. The David Clark Company, long associated with flight and spacesuits, made the variation for the early space shuttle crews, and this one became known as the S-1030A, also known as the Shuttle Ejection Escape Suit. Now, as that name suggests, the suit was intended to protect astronauts in the event of an emergency ejection, and they were rated to protect an astronaut up to an altitude of 80,000 feet, and a speed of Mach 2.7, which is a big yowza. So let's talk about that for a second to get our minds wrapped around what this means. So, as you climb in the atmosphere, the air pressure drops, which makes sense, right? After all, on the ground, you've got the pressure of all that atmosphere pressing down on you. But as you go higher, you have less atmosphere above you, and so there's less pressure pushing down on you. At 80,000 feet, the air pressure is 0.406 pounds per square inch. Temperature is a bit fiddly when it comes to altitudes. The temperature drops off as you climb up to a point, but then as you hit the stratosphere, the temperature actually starts to go up as you climb, and then as you get beyond the stratosphere, the temperature plunges again. No joke. But at 80,000 feet, you're looking at temperatures of nearly negative 62 Fahrenheit. So... The suit has to protect against both the low pressure and the low temperature. Now let's talk about Mach 2.7. Some folks reduce Mach to mean a multiple of the speed of sound. So if you're going Mach 3, you're going three times the speed of sound, which is only part of the picture uh, because the actual explanation of Mach is more complicated. And part of that is because the nature of the speed of sound is more complicated. Because sound travels at a speed that's dependent upon the medium through which it travels. So in other words, sound travels at different speeds at different conditions. And those conditions can include things like temperature. So it'll travel a different speed at sea level at standard temperature than it will at 80,000 feet. So Mach actually describes the ratio of the flow velocity of some fluid, like air compared to the speed of sound through that particular medium. For shorthand, you could say it's like a multiplier. You know, you could say, oh, it's multiplied by the speed of sound. But just know that when you really dig down, it gets a little more complicated than that. Now, your typical commercial aircraft travels at a speed of around Mach 0.8. So Mach 2.7 is wicked fast. It's kind of like around you know, more than 2,000 miles per hour or approximately 3,334 kilometers per hour. So the suit needed to protect uh, astronauts against the forces they would encounter should they have to eject at that speed, which is pretty crazy stuff. Now, this version of the space shuttle had ejection seats for the pilot and co And as I said, those early shuttle flights only had two astronauts each to make certain that the shuttle was operating at the expected levels and testing it out to make certain it could go into operational status. Now, keep in mind, the purpose of the shuttle was to serve as a reusable vehicle that we could take to low Earth orbit and then come back to Earth. So the ejector seats and the escape suits were standard issue for STS-1 through STS-4, the first four test missions of the space shuttle. Uh, Space Shuttle Columbia, I should add. The suits would connect to the shuttle for the purposes of life support. And if you ever look at a photo of an astronaut wearing one of these, you'd say that is not an attractive spacesuit because they kind of look like lumpy potatoes. They weren't designed for use outside the shuttle in space, so they lacked the various layers of thermal protection and Teflon coating and whatnot to protect against like micrometeoroids and the extremes of temperature that you would find in outer space. There would be no need to worry about that stuff until a bit later with the first shuttle-based EVAs. The pressure suits did have bladders in the legs, so they were partially pressurized. Uh, They were pressurized in the lower body. And again, this was to provide the pressure needed to keep blood from pooling in the lower extremities during times of extreme acceleration. So this helps protect against blackouts, right? If all your blood starts rushing to the lower part of your your body, then there's not enough in your brain to keep you, you know, conscious. So this pressure helped prevent against that. It helped kind of put enough pressure on the lower limbs so that blood couldn't pool down in the lower body. I talked about it a bit in our previous episodes. After the first four test flight missions of the space shuttle, NASA made a few changes, and for one thing, they got rid of the ejection seats in the shuttle, which meant that the suits really weren't a fit anymore either, because the whole reason to have the suits was as a protective outfit in the event of having to eject out of the shuttle. So they got rid of them. Starting with STS-5, the fifth flight of the Space Shuttle Columbia, and the first operational flight, meaning the first to actually be considered more than a test flight. This was one that was delivering a payload to outer space. The crews on that vessel didn't wear pressurized suits during takeoff and landing or launch and re-entry slash landing. They had simple flight suits. They were blue in color. They weren't pressurized. They did have helmets to protect their noggins for launch and re-entry and landing, but they weren't wearing any sort of pressurized suit with life support. NASA was sort of following the old Soviet model, which for many years did not have cosmonauts wearing pressurized suits until there was this tragic decompression accident that changed things. As it turns out, a similar tragedy would change NASA's approach a few years later. Now, I don't really have much to say about the blue flight suits because they didn't really represent a lot of tech. And really, they showed that NASA had a high level of confidence in the safety and operation of the shuttle. But I can talk... About the new extravehicular activity or EVA space suits. NASA planned to have two astronauts go on a spacewalk during STS 5, but some health issues delayed that, and then a technical error in one of the suits put those plans on ice until STS 6, the sixth mission. Uh, that would end up being the maiden flight of the shuttle Challenger. And yeah, both Columbia and Challenger have tragic ends. But STS-6 was a success, and during that mission, astronauts put the new Extravehicular Mobility Unit, or EMU, to the test. So let's talk about those. So, one big change with the EMU, or EMU, was what was worn underneath it. Specifically, the MAG, or M-A-G. That stands for Maximum Absorbency Garment. And if you think that sounds like a diaper, it depends No, you're on the right track. Gone were the days of the urine collection devices, because those were meant to work with male astronauts. And the space program had finally evolved beyond being a men-only endeavor. After this, you know, garment, you would slide on a one-piece thermal garment called the Thermal Control Undergarment. It's kind of like a bodysuit or long johns, And then came the Liquid Cooling and Ventilation Garment, or LCVG, similar to the one that was worn by Apollo astronauts. This is the thing that allows cool water to run through tubes that are against the garment and help maintain a a good body temperature for the astronaut. The suit had a few other pieces to it. Uh, The two big ones were the Lower Torso Assembly, or LTA, And then you had the hard upper torso, or H-U-T, hut. So as the name implies, the hard upper torso, first of all, it was for the upper torso, so like the chest and shoulders and stomach even, and it had a rigid body structure made out of fiberglass, which could hold in the pressure of the suit and not have it balloon outward. So instead of using like a tough, tight material to restrain ballooning, This was just a, you know, a hard material. It didn't flex at all. Uh, The arms of the suit, the helmet, and the lower torso assembly all would connect to the HUT, as did the PLSS, uh, the primary life support system, officially known as that now. And the display controls module would also mount on the front. This is the sort of Darth Vader looking collection of uh, indicators and, and controls. Uh, also, the hut would hold a bag filled with drinkable liquid with a straw that would extend up to the helmet of the astronaut because, even in space, it's important to stay hydrated. Ultimately, NASA only produced three sizes of the hut, which meant, in turn, that the organization had a limited number of choices when it came to which astronauts would be able to go on EVAs because the suit was not a one-size-fits-all kind of deal, nor was NASA planning on custom building a suit for every astronaut. The exterior of the EMU is bright white, partly to reflect heat, and partly so that the astronaut is extremely visible against the blackness of space. And in total, the suit has 14 layers, from the liquid cooling layers that are closest to the astronaut's skin to a pressure suit layer, to a restraint layer to keep that pressure in check, to a neoprene layer to hold everything in, to seven layers of micrometeoroid and thermal protective material, and an outer layer of Kevlar, Nomex, and Gore-Tex. All right, so an astronaut going on an EVA would first put on their, uh, you know, their undersuit, but then they would put on the LTA, the lower half of this suit, the leggings and boots and you know stuff that comes up to the hips, essentially. And this half is the soft half. It's the pliable half, well, at least when it's not pressurized. And then they would put on the hut, the upper half, and seal those two together. They'd lock in together and have a sealing layer that was used necessary. Obviously, you want to keep a seal airtight. Then they would put on their Snoopy cap, This is a close-fitting head covering that incorporates speakers and a microphone that allows for communications with others. Then they would seal on the gloves and helmet. Then the suit would pressurize. The PLSS would activate, and then you would have your astronaut ready to go. Now, it only took around 15 minutes to get into or out of the suit from beginning to end, but the process of going on an EVA would require a lot more prep work than just getting into gear, like you had that whole pre-breathe exercise you had to do, too. All right, so connecting the PLSS to the suit, there was uh, another element on the EMU called the Electrical Harness or EEH or EMU Electrical Harness. This was worn inside the suit but with connections to link the PLSS to the suit itself. So all the systems would be interconnected. The helmet had various visors to protect against stuff like sunlight. It also had mounted headlamps and could accommodate a TV camera transmitter as well so that you could get that glorious first-person astronaut view. While the David Clark Company made the pressurized suits for the early test flights of the space shuttle, the EMU was the product of two other companies. One was Hamilton Standard, and the other was ILC Dover. And while the first real use of the EMU was aboard the STS-6 after the failed attempt on STS-5, I should also add that they actually had one of these suits on STS-4 during one of the test flights, and they practiced the process of putting the suit on and taking it off in zero-G to make sure that there weren't any other issues that needed to be worked out. Uh, They didn't take it on an EVA, they didn't leave the shuttle, but they did practice getting in, into and out of it. The EMU design would evolve a little bit over the years, but to this day there are still EMUs aboard the International Space Station, and when you think about that, like how old these things are, that's something, right? Uh, the ones there actually have a little bit more of a modular design, which gives astronauts the ability to change the fitting slightly, which helps them accommodate different body sizes and types, at least to an extent. The hut still kind of limits things a bit in that regard. Uh, I should also mention that these things are pretty heavy, at least back here on Earth, they're heavy. Out in space, you don't really have to worry about it. Weight's not so much a thing you got to worry when you're in you know, a microgravity environment. But if you were to suit up down here, you probably wouldn't be going on any sprints or anything like that. That's because the shuttle version of the EVA weighed in at around 275 pounds, around a little less than 125 kilograms. And the version that would be worn aboard the ISS was even heftier. That was 319 pounds, or around 145 kilograms. One other thing I want to cover before we go to break is the MMU, or Manned Maneuvering Unit. This was a propulsion unit that fit over the life support system that you wore on your back when you were in an EMU. This was kind of like a jet pack for space, uh, although not using, you know, thrusters with ignited fuel, instead using nitrogen gas as a propellant. And there were 24 nozzles on the MMU, so you could use the combination of nozzles to kind of maneuver your way and float through space with this backpack and not have any other connection to the spacecraft, like no tether, just floating around out there. Uh, You would use a hand controls on the MMU to kind of guide where you wanted to go. Bruce McCandless did this in 1984, and there's a famous photo of him looking back at the shuttle with nothing connecting him to the spacecraft as he just floats above the Earth. And if I think about it too much while I'm looking at that picture, I actually start to feel anxiety. It is an incredible photo. The MMU was used on only three missions before NASA retired it, and the reason the agency sunsetted the MMU was the same reason that the Blue Jumpsuit era would come to an end. It would be a disaster that would change everything. But we'll talk about that after this quick break. On January 29th, 1986, the space shuttle Challenger broke apart 73 seconds after launch, killing all aboard. This was one of those big defining moments in history. History in general, not just the space industry. For one thing, as a launch, multiple news outlets were covering the story live in real time, and so the world saw this explosion happen. For another, NASA had really promoted this mission heavily, partly because a high school teacher, Krista, she was part of the crew and she would have been the first teacher in space. And for that reason, it was something a lot of schools were showing live on on televisions in 1986. A whole generation of school kids were exposed to this tragic disaster in real time. And I, I mean, I was one of them. I was 10 when it happened. I could do a full episode about that mission and what happened as a result of that disaster. But for our purposes, let's just stick to the suits. NASA grounded the space shuttle program and conducted a full investigation and evaluation of the program. No space shuttle missions flew for two years and eight months. And when the program returned, so did pressurized flight suits Astronauts had to wear these suits for launch and for re-entry and landing. So once again, they had to wear a specific suit for those moments in a mission. Uh, They were officially called the launch entry suit. These new suits would get the nickname pumpkin suits because they were bright orange in color. And the thinking was that in an emergency evacuation, they would likely be over water, And the bright orange color would make the suits really easy to spot against the ocean. The suits had partial pressurization. They were not fully pressurized. So again, around the legs to prevent blackouts. So similar to uh, the, the ejection suits that were worn in the test flights of the space shuttle for STS-1 through 4. The gloves for the suits would actually just zipper onto the suits themselves. They did not have like the ring locking mechanism that other suits did. Uh, They they came with a helmet with a polycarbonate faceplate that could seal onto the neck of the suit. The astronauts also wore heavy-duty boots in addition to the suit, and they had a survival backpack, which included stuff like a parachute and a life raft, among some other things. As spacesuits go, this one kind of sat between the emergency ejection suits of the early shuttle tests and the jumpsuit that astronauts wore up to the Challenger disaster. They were kind of smack dab in the middle. These suits remained in use until the mid-90s when NASA would replace them with the Advanced Crew Escape Suit, or ACES, A-C-E-S. These are also called pumpkin suits, also because they're bright orange, but they are puffier than the LES suits that came before them. So unlike the LES, the ACES suits for the later space shuttle era, they were and are full pressure suits. They aren't just partially pressurized. So rather than having zippered connections for the gloves, the gloves lock on through lock rings, much like EMU suits do. They also include a liquid cooling mechanism to help with body temperature, so we're back to that as well. And the ACES suit has a detachable helmet and also comes complete with a survival backpack, similar to the LES. Like the LES, astronauts would wear the ACES suit during launch and re-entry and landing. It's very similar to the SoCool suits, that the Russians use, uh, though the Russians suit helmet is permanently attached to the suit and there's no backpack on the Sokol suits because there's not enough room in a Soyuz capsule to hand, handle one. But uh, these are the suits that have been in use long after the shuttle program has come to an end. And now let's talk a little bit about some planned suits, including a couple that never entered into service. One of those was the Constellation spacesuits. I shouldn't say one, two of them were the <laughs> Constellation spacesuits because there were two different versions. So, the Constellation project was meant to pick up where the space shuttle was leaving off, with the idea being that the new spacecraft would take astronauts to and from the International Space Station and ultimately to the moon, hopefully by 2020. This would be the Orion spacecraft. And if you are paying attention, you know that 2020 came and went and no one was going to the moon. Well, the Constellation program ultimately got the axe after a full review of the program revealed that it would be unsuccessful without a substantial increase in the budget. But had it gone ahead, we would have seen a new type of spacesuit meant to be worn both during critical maneuvers, such as during launch and reentry, as well as for EVAs. So in other words, astronauts would have an indoor-outdoor spacesuit. And there were two planned configurations of this suit. Configuration one would have covered most missions with a full-pressure suit that included a closed-loop environmental system allowing for operation in space. And like some of the older suits I've talked about, this one would connect to the Orion spacecraft's life support system through an umbilical tether rather than incorporating its own PLSS. The second configuration was planned for lunar missions. This was more of a heavy-duty one. This suit would make use of the same arms, legs, boots, helmet, and gloves as Configuration 1's suit, but it would have a different torso section. It would also allow for higher pressure within the suit, something that could head off issues like decompression sickness, which I mentioned about earlier, the bends, that kind of thing. While the U.S. discontinued the Constellation program in 2010, NASA continued to develop the Constellation spacesuit, But simultaneously, a different department within NASA was working on the Advanced Spacesuit Project. So you had two different spacesuit programs working at the same time. Let's talk about this Advanced Spacesuit Project one. The initiative developed two designs for EVA suits, the Z1 and the Z2. The Z1 uses a soft suit approach, meaning, you know, it's mostly pliable when it's not pressurized. It has some hard components, but it's mostly fabric. Uh it has a large dome-shaped helmet attached to the suit. Kind of looks like Buzz Lightyear. In fact, the white suit has like some green lines on it and all the, the pictures of it. So it really does look like a Buzz Lightyear suit. And it splits into upper and lower torso segments, as well as having assembly mechanisms for gloves and boots to attach to the suit. The Z-2 has a hard upper torso rather than a soft one, so it's similar to the EMU suit I mentioned earlier. In addition to the Z-1 and Z-2, the project spawned an updated PLSS. This one was called the Next Generation Life Support, or NGLS, complete with an improved method for removing carbon dioxide from the suit's air supply. In 2016, NASA made the decision to combine the information that had been learned from the Constellation project as well as the Advanced Spacesuit Project, and create a new one, kind of like Voltron. All this joining together to find the XEMU project. Zemu, I guess, or Exemu, if you prefer. Uh, This is the specific project that the audit found to be behind schedule, to the point that the Artemis program, in which we were supposed to go back to the moon by 2024, is not going to happen. At least not on that timetable. In fact, according to the report, these suits will not be ready until April 2025 at the earliest. That's if everything goes right. The report on those suits is available online and it is heckin' thorough, y'all. In that report, we learned that the Constellation suit program cost $135.7 million bucks before it came to an end. The Advanced Spacesuit pro- Project, that it cost another $51.6 million dollars. And the ex-EMU has cost, so far, around $232.8 million. I did the math, and that means that NASA has spent more than $420 million on the next generation of spacesuits already. 420. NASA's just blazing through that cash. And according to the report, it's not even halfway to what will ultimately get spent on these suits before they are fully built, tested, and deployed. Yowza. Still. When you're talking about keeping people alive in space, it's obvious it's going to cost a lot of money. But what happened? Well, that's complicated. Uh, So one bit is that there are multiple offices or departments within NASA responsible for spacesuit development. They aren't always working on the same projects or with each other. So you've got a lot of overlap, potentially. You've got a lot of potential wasted effort because it's not a unified approach. Uh, This doesn't mean that it's always a bad thing because you can often get really good ideas coming out of totally different groups that would have died on the vine if it had been a unified project, but it does make it more complicated. So like this is like when NASA decided that the constellation program and the advanced spacesuit program needed to kind of combine into each other for another, as I mentioned before, NASA is an organization that sees a lot of changes every year for one thing. There's always a political battle over NASA's funding. Any agency that's dependent upon federal funds is going to find it hard to stay on track because support can fluctuate from year to year. You might get a year where you get more financial support and another year where no one is really supporting you. And that makes it really hard to stay on task with projects. For another, the head of NASA gets their position courtesy of whomever happens to be president. So that means leadership at NASA changes fairly regularly, and that can mean projects that were in progress might end up being put on the back shelf or even getting the axe. NASA, I want to add, is an incredible agency. There are countless people devoted to the pursuit of science and knowledge who are working there. They are innovating, they are solving problems that are really spectacular problems, but they also have to work in a system that isn't always dependable or stable, right? Like, things change. Priorities change. Leadership changes. And this sometimes means that something that was in development gets taken off development. And When you add to that the normal challenges of just trying to create technology with all the designing and testing and then the redesigning and rebuilding and retesting and all of that effort, particularly for technology that's meant to help keep people alive in an environment that is trying to kill you, and you can see why there are issues. My hope is that we will see the XEMU suits emerge. Uh, We need them. The ISS needs them. And there are some cool things that they're supposed to incorporate. Now, I'm holding off on going into detail about all that because, as we've seen, sometimes stuff that we plan for just doesn't pan out. Like a a feature that was considered to be critical ends up getting cut. So I don't want to cover all the things that are planned for it. I want to wait to see what happens. But believe me, if we get to a point where we've got a working XEMU suit ready to go into service, I will come back to this topic and we will do a full episode on it. And that ends our journey about the evolution of spacesuits so far. I didn't really cover the private spacesuit sector. I might do that in a future episode at some point. Um, It's one that I have mixed feelings about because I often feel that people like Elon Musk um, dismiss how hard this is to do safely and properly. But on the other hand, there is something to be said about having the entire process under the control of a single company. So there are advantages to the private space approach that a federally funded agency like NASA cannot take advantage of. That that much is true. I just don't know that Musk boasting that he could get it done through SpaceX and take care of NASA's spacesuit problem is really that accurate. But who am I to say? Maybe they'll be able to do it. We'll have to wait and see. And that's it. If you have suggestions for topics I should cover on future episodes of Tech Stuff, whether it's a company, a technology, a trend in tech, maybe it's just something you want to know more about, let me know on Twitter. The handle for the show is HSW, and I'll talk to you again really soon. Tech Stuff is an iHeartRadio production. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app,